I'm Jeannie O'Connor and I am um, here to introduce Elizabeth Graham, who is the director of the Texas Right to Life, which is the oldest, largest, and only statewide pro-life organization in Texas. Originally from Kansas City, Missouri, and a graduate of Rockhurst College, which is where my father-in-law went to school for one year before he went to the Naval Academy, Elizabeth moved to Houston in 1994 and began working as a volunteer for the Texas Right to Life in 1998. In the 17 years that she has worked for the Texas Right to Life, their membership has grown to over 250,000 households. Along with her many other activities, Elizabeth spearheads the Texas Right to Life group that stays in Austin during the entire legislative session to advise the state representatives on any right to life bills. Whether it's educational, legislative, or grassroots activity, Elizabeth works tirelessly for the unborn. Please help me welcome Elizabeth Graham. And yes, she is a Royals fan and That's a right. Kansas City Chiefs fan, and hopefully they'll make it to That's right. the World Series. That's Go right. Royals. Today's a deciding factor of that. So if you don't know, the Kansas City Royals are in the American League playoffs and with the Toronto Blue Jays. And so today's a deciding factor whether they win the American League championships. Just an important fun fact for you to know. So. Well, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so impressed with this crowd and these young women and I'm excited that there are actually people who are gonna join the fight when I'm old and gray and I'm closer than you think. So I'm thrilled to be here at the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. Texas Right to Life, we've actually enjoyed a long-standing relationship with the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute and also with Michelle's husband, Ron Robinson, at the Young Americas Foundation. We're very grateful to stand alongside such committed women in the fight to defend our freedoms and our faith and, of course, in our fight to defend the right to life. Texas Right to Life is a nonprofit, non-sectarian, non-partisan grassroots organization, and we seek to defend the right to life of the unborn, the disabled, the sick, the elderly, and the unloved. We do that through legal, peaceful, and prayerful means. And we say that we do that from womb to tomb, so from fertilization until natural death. We have many educational programs on college campuses and high schools, but we also spearhead the lobbying efforts in our state capital. The role of politics in pro-life advocacy cannot be overstated. Claire Booth Luce knew this and she lived this reality. She recognized that political action and pro-life conviction are indivisible. She recognized that being personally, you know that I'm personally pro-life, that popular limp sentiment which has ushered our country into this human life mess was not enough to guarantee life and protection for vulnerable persons. Claire is remembered as a feminist, but I suggest that her belief in the equality of the sexes was predicated upon a deeper understanding shared by our founding fathers that all humans, all humans are created equal. Zygotes, embryos, fetuses, newborns, adolescents, adults, the elderly, men and women, the healthy, disabled, men and women, and everyone in between, Claire and her compatriots knew and recognized and advocated that all these humans held equal value and significance. 
If humans are not equal, upon what foundation does the feminist belief that men and women are equal stand? In Claire's time, similar to our own time, a second chorus of female voices arose to subvert the conversation about human equality and equality of the sexes. The other voice, which also refers to itself as feminists, grappled for political dominance. They militantly demanded the right to kill their children as a condition of their publicly recognized equality to men. These dueling feminist worldview have infiltrated politics, and in Claire's time, the conflict indefinitely stalled the enactment of the Equal Rights Amendment, a constitutional amendment which was aimed at eradicating the inequality between the sexes and which, behind which Claire rallied. But anti-life feminists or pro-abortion feminists insisted on the injection of a provision of a, insisted on the injection of a provision onto the Equal Rights Amendment, and their provision demanded abortion on demand. Claire responded with vehement opposition. In her 1978 letter to the women's lobby, she said, "If the Equal Rights Amendment." fails to pass, as I now fear it will, a large part of the blame must fall on those misguided feminists who have tried to make the extraneous issue of unrestricted and federally funded abortion the centerpiece of the equal rights struggle. At Texas Right to Life, we affectionately refer to this breed of ladies as feminists. Decades later, these liberal feminists still try, they're still trying, to insert the extraneous issue of unrestricted and federally funded abortion into public policy and into the public sphere. That is why our work in pro-life politics cannot be overstated. While America increasingly professes pro-life views, and a clear-headed look at the polls overwhelmingly establishes this, the faux faction of feminism continues to wreak havoc on the political system. Paradoxically, though, Rather than working towards equality of the sexes, the destruction of human equality really seems to be the true objective of the modern liberal feminist movement. The recently released videos, anybody seen those? Show of hands? Impressive. The videos capture top officials of Planned Parenthood and the most invested players in the abortion industry discussing, discussing the wholesale of human body parts ravaged from preborn children who were terminated at Planned Parenthood clinics. Notably, every single protagonist in the videos is female. The abortionists are female. The procurement technicians, the biomedical buyers are female. The office managers, the research directors, the ladies at the door, the medical directors, and of course, Planned Parenthood CEO. They're all female. This is doubly paradoxical because if you consider that all abortion patients are women and half of all the abortion victims are female. So the modern day abortion industry is the mantle for feminism and they're wounding women and killing the women inside of them. This is what our liberal feminist counterparts call progress. And they're loud and the media listens to them. The media has showcased the blathering abortion lobby almost exclusively over the damning videos, which many legal experts have recognized as containing criminal behavior. Make no mistake, the abortion lobby is financially plush 
and morally bankrupt. As long as a penny can be made from emptying our wombs, they will persist in their depravity. And supporters, their supporters have muted their conscience, and their supporters continue to prop up this deadly organization. The Center for Medical Progress, their videos prove beyond a reasonable doubt that no money-making endeavor is off-limits to this abortion behemoth. As long as they can profit from elective abortion on demand, Planned Parenthood will push back against every single restriction, against every single law, against every single policy, while trying to widen their client base. If they strike down all the laws and restrictions about what they can do and who they can serve, they get more women in their doors. Absent a vanguard of pro-life politicians, such as Connie Burton, lobby groups like us, and activists like you, like each of you, keeping a watchful eye on every bill and amendment that passes through state and local government, we can be sure that these liberal feminists will undercut the right to life at every chance. And when one of us is devalued, every single other person is devalued and at risk. Assembling and maintaining this vanguard is a primary goal of Texas Right to Life. Like the Claire Booth Lewis Policy Institute, we recognize that the state and national interests of protecting our most vulnerable citizens must be key to every other type of activism. Sadly, Texas bears the burden of Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that legalized abortion in all 50 states. We produce the plaintiff and the attorneys who fought for the decision and were embarrassed by that. And now that Texas has turned red, we bear the pressing burden to flip Roe v. Wade. Abortion started in Texas and we want to end it in Texas. The death toll in America is already in the tens of millions and those are only the abortions of which we know. There could be double that number that aren't reported. But the state level efforts of the pro-life lobby are so important. You hear states across the country passing pro-life bills. Governor Bobby Jindal, he just defunded Planned Parenthood through Medicaid. He did something really great. Have you all heard about this? So Bobby Jindal, governor of Louisiana, the Planned Parenthood protesters were outside either his office or the governor's mansion because he was making efforts to defund the abortion lobby and the abortion industry in Louisiana after the videos had come out from the Center for Medical Progress. So they were protesting outside of where he works or where he lives. I'm not sure if it was his mansion or his office or his residence or his office. So he put up huge screens that televised, broadcasted these videos so that the people protesting would actually have to see how their abortion lobby is cutting up the parts of babies and selling them. It was brilliant. But efforts like his and what we've done here in Texas are having an impact. They're having an impact on the culture and they're having an impact on women's lives and they're changing the conversation like Marlene was just talking about. That reduction of the number of abortions across the country but also in Texas can be directly attributed to the expansion of alternatives to abortion, whether those are pregnancy centers, people praying on the sidewalks, people ministering to pregnant women, activism on campus, can, the reduction in abortions can be directly attributed to efforts like that as well as pro-life laws. Texas Right to Life spearheaded the passage of some of the most significant pro-life laws in the country. Our victories include strong informed consent before an abortion. We don't women, want women choosing abortion. Our sentiment is 
if we provide them as much information as possible beforehand, they might change their mind. So we put in a 24-hour waiting period before the time, between the time a woman calls a clinic and goes back for her abortion. And there are a few other hoops in there that deter women from choosing abortion. That's called the Woman's Right to Know Act. That passed in 2003. Our sonogram law passed in 2011, which is also when Texas Right to Life led the defunding efforts here in Texas, and 12 clinics closed after 2011. But our sonogram bill included a provision that said the sonogram must be displayed in a manner so the woman can see the sonogram. So the technician can't turn the screen away from the woman and hide in the corner and just say, oh, I don't see any activity. What's awesome about that is that Louisiana, the Louisiana legislature was in the process of passing their sonogram bill too. And once the courts ruled the Texas sonogram law as constitutional and legit and a good way for, to add to informed consent, Louisiana then put that same provision in their law about keeping the sonogram in, a, in the woman's line of sight. Better yet, Congressman Jim Jordan, a doctor from Florida, I think he's from Florida, might be North Carolina, it's one of those great conservative states. Congressman Jim Jordan changed his federal sonogram bill, that's not passed, but he changed his language in the federal sonogram bill to mirror what Texas has done as far as the line of sight issue. We also, of course, passed House Bill 2 in the summer of 2013. This law has endlessly volleyed from court to court because the abortion lobby does not want to meet the same health and safety standards that other medical clinics have to meet. House Bill 2 also stopped late-term abortions. So that means little babies who are at five, five months gestation, they can feel pain and they're conscious. They're now protected from that excruciating dismemberment procedure by House Bill 2. And that's the one provision that has not been challenged in court. I tell you all this to emphasize that pro-life politics are the gateway to pro-life victories, both in the legislature but also in educational efforts, because in some cases law serves as the teacher. The political game may be distasteful, but the sidelines are not an option for us. If we fall back, what happens? If we fail and give up, people die. People don't necessarily die if public schools aren't funded. They don't necessarily die if we don't clear up traffic or fix immigration or fixed taxes. Those are key issues. I'm not advocating that people should not work on those. But if the pro-lifers quit, people die. They really do die. And not only do they die, they're slaughtered without a trial. We must not forget that for every determined stride made in pro-life politics, radical feminists redouble their anti-life crusade. We saw the most audacious example of this in Wendy Davis. Anybody know who she is? Abortion Barbie. Thank you. We now have that state Senate seat taken back, thank God, by pro-life Barbie, Senator Connie Davis. In her glorified pink sneakers, and she does know we call her that, Senator Burton does. In her glorified pink sneakers, Wendy Davis, she stood for 11 hours to filibuster the most widely accepted pro-life position in the nation, which is a ban on abortions of children who can feel pain. She stood for 11 hours, 11 hours, of course, she skirted around the details of the procedure. She wouldn't answer direct questions about the procedure, but instead she chose to conjure up tired images of female repression and women driving for hours and hours and hours for birth control and the so-called dangers of back alley abortion. The support that Davis commanded at the Capitol amounted to nothing more than an angry run-amop.
This mob hurled insults at pro-lifers. Their graphic theatrics and vulgar acts landed them in jail, and they threw objects, objects that I'm embarrassed to mention to you all, at pro-lifers and at legislators. And all the while, Wendy Davis cashed in on her national adulation to the tune of millions of dollars in fawning donations. She tucked the money into her campaign piggy bank and gleefully rode the tidal wave to the podium to announce her campaign for governor of Texas. But death begets death, and voters rejected her extremism, slaughtered her at the polls, and laid her political career to rest. An example of pro-life politics at work and changing the messaging a little bit. In the Valley, which is South Texas, there are 24 of 26 counties that are considered the Rio Grande Valley. Texas Right to Life aired radio ads in Spanish. We'd never done that before. We had some funding to do that. We thought we should give it a try because we know the Latino and Hispanic communities are pro-life. For some reason, they vote Democrat, but they vote pro-life. So we aired radio ads in the Valley that said how extreme she was and she won't protect babies uh, from abortion. And of course, it was in Spanish, so I can't repeat the ads to you. She lost in the Democratic primary to a guy who was unknown and had no money. Wendy Davis lost the Democratic primary in 24 of these 26 counties to a no-name socialist. Political pundits from Washington, D.C. and analysts have told us there is no other variable in those 24 counties other than the ads run by Texas Right to Life in Spanish. So we have slowly begun making inroads to the Hispanic community because like Brooke and Marlene and Senator Burton said, when we communicate values and tell the story that resonates with people, people will vote for the right causes and they will vote their principles. Pro-life politics, it works. Even still, pro-life feminism, excuse me, the fake kind of feminism, is firmly planted in yesteryear. I look around you. I mean, all of you conservative women are here at a conference to learn how to be more effective conservative activists. But radical remnants of feminism are waiting for us just around the corner in our communities, and especially on our college campuses, and even in our state capitals. Claire Booth Luth saw the idiocy of their fight. In her letter to the women's lobby, the one I cited earlier, she wrote, I do not accept the extraordinary proposition that women cannot achieve equal rights before the law until all women are given the legal right to empty their wombs at will at the expense of the taxpayer. And state-funded abortion is exactly what liberal feminists are fighting for. They almost achieved this when Obama single-handedly enforced the HHS mandate that required federally funded birth control that causes abortion. But most disturbing is the broad support base that still props up Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry despite the legion evidence of their barbaric and illegal practices. And just in case you've been living in a hovel since July when the Center for Medical Progress released their bombshell video footage, here's a refresher on Planned Parenthood 101. They are the largest abortion provider in America, the largest abortion cartel. They get half a billion, billion with a B, of your money every year. They commit 363 abortions every year that we know of. That's one-third of the nation's annual abortions. 
Their funding is fudgeable. So while they'll tell you, oh, your taxpayer dollars don't pay for abortion, well, we pay for the electricity that turns on the suction machine that takes the babies out of our womb. We pay the salaries. We pay for all that equipment you saw in the videos that they're having to clean up. Their, C their CEO, Cecile Richards, she is paid a half a million dollars a year. And she made these damning admissions to U.S. Congress in late August when her back was to the wall. Planned Parenthood sells baby parts. Planned Parenthood leadership have always known that they sell baby parts. Planned Parenthood abortionists manipulate abortion procedures so as to procure higher-valued, intact, aborted babies. So they change the procedure so the baby comes out whole, the dead baby, forgive me, so they can sell the dead baby in one piece for more money than if they chop them up inside. Now, I'm not so naive to know that in a room full of women, someone here may be struggling with the pain of a past abortion. Please understand that you are welcome here, and we ask you to seek healing so that you are comfortable with your pro-life values. We know it's a very sore subject and very hurtful. My job here today is to let you know how pro-life politics is important to the pro-life cause. If you are one of those women, we ask you to seek the courage to share your story because other women heal when women who have had abortions heal share their stories. And you help other women not choose abortion so that we can end the pain and suffering on our feminist cause. In 1809, Thomas Jefferson said, the care of human life and not its destruction is the first and only legitimate goal of good government. Can anyone coherently argue, knowing what we do about Planned Parenthood, can anyone coherently argue that American taxpayers have a legitimate reason to fund the abortion behemoth? A strong argument should and could be made that we have an obligation to shut down Planned Parenthood about, in light of what we now know. They're undergoing a new wave of government scrutiny, thank God, it's long overdue, carried out by politicians who are unyieldingly pro-life. The organization is also the target of state-level investigations all over the country. Texas has led the charge. We just, uh, actually, Louisiana was first. We were first in 2011, Louisiana was first this year, and now we're second this year. We'll, we'll let Louisiana have that for a little bit. Missy Farrell, who is the research director at Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast, that's the big one. That's the biggest abortion clinic in the Western Hemisphere, the one in Houston. Seven stories, 78,000 square feet. She was on video, and her revelations about the internal operations of Planned Parenthood in Texas caused our own state's Health and Human Services Department to yank the Medicaid contracts from Planned Parenthood. That is pro-life politics at work when our governor and our elected officials see what Planned Parenthood is doing and they go through the state agencies to change the policies and yank the contracts. A few examples of pro-life politics at work in that regard. So besides my staff, who can name the governor of Texas? Excellent. And his name is? Ex Greg Abbott, excellent. So he started out as a local judge in Harris County. My husband and I used to see him at church, and we knew him, and we uh, endorsed him, and we interviewed him, and he was a big admirer of our fa my father-in-law, Dr. Joseph Graham, the president, the related president, related? Yes, he's, he's passed. I was thinking there was a different word for that. Dr. Joseph Graham, our president and founder. So Judge Abbott and Dr. Graham were friends, and my husband and I knew Judge Abbott. 
Well, as a judge in Harris County, he wanted to run for Supreme Court of Texas. So Texas Right to Life interviewed him, supported him because he was very pro-life. Well, after that, he became, ran for successfully, Attorney General. And as Attorney General, he gave several rulings and opinions to affirm the pro-life laws that our legislature passed. In fact, on that informed consent issue that I talked about, the law that we worked on in 2003, Abbott gave a ruling when he was Attorney General that said that informed consent law, the 24-hour waiting period, and giving a woman the information before abortion applies to RU486, meaning the abortion pill. So it, he clarified that the new informed consent law not only applies to surgical abortion, but also this medical abortion. And then he gave us another ruling much later. He has given us several, so I won't bore you with all of them. He gave us another ruling saying that our own state agencies could decide how and what federal rules we wanted to enforce or we wanted to adhere to in Texas. And that was key for us when we decided to change the rules for family planning, which is also a misnomer for Planned Parenthood money. And now he's our governor. So local pro-life politics do matter. Ted Cruz, he was our solicitor general when Greg Abbott was attorney general. We knew him then, we worked with him then, and he Actually, he didn't make the steps that Abbott has done. He just shot right to the top. Nevertheless, that afforded us an opportunity to be comfortable with his pro-life views and start a working relationship, which we hope will continue. Another great example of pro-life politics at work, at least in our experience, Ellen Troxclair. Her maiden name was something else when we first met her. She was this cute little college intern who was finishing college in the office of a state representative, a prominent pro-life state representative in the Texas legislature. And she sort of was awakened to politics and became real interested in politics as a staffer. Well now, she's Ellen Troxclair, and she serves on the city council in Austin, which is crazy. Austin city council is more liberal than you could probably ever imagine. Might be as bad as New York city council or somewhere in California. Ellen Truxclair, it's a difficult last name, called Texas Right to Life this week because of the relationship we had with her in the Capitol and said, Planned Parenthood is losing all its money. They're now coming to the city council because they want the Austin city council to authorize us to tell our lobbyists that we want our lobbyists to lobby for Planned Parenthood money. And she said, what do I do about that? And so our legislative director and a couple of our legislative members, team members went to the Austin City Council to testify against that. But I was thinking, if we had not befriended her or she didn't know who to call or have a pro-life resource in her Rolodex or her contacts, she may have been the only person sitting on city council and have not been able to tell pro-lifers what they're doing. And there's another guy on city council too who started a chapter of Texas Right to Life years ago. I tell you this to emphasize that pro-life politics, even at a local level, cannot be overstated. All this sounds really good, I know. But it's so important because look who's in the White House. He's so enamored with the abortion industry and he thinks abortion is so key to the feminist movement that he publicly said, God bless Planned Parenthood. You may be thinking, yes, this is bad, but what can I do? Here's what you can do. First of all, become informed. Find out where your local pregnancy centers are. Find out where your local alternatives to abortion are. You may be the only person who can help a friend 
who's experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. Know what your options are, know where to take them. If you, don't, if you think you don't know anyone impacted by unplanned pregnancy or abortion, you're wrong. One in three women now, the count is one in three women have had an abortion. You know someone, and it might be someone next to you in church, it might be someone in your own family. You know someone. Find out where the alternatives to abortion are so that you can be a voice for that little baby in your friend's womb. You also should find out where they are so that you can learn more about the pro-life movement through these pregnancy centers. Find out what they do, how they help women, what other medical services they provide, and that way you have sort of a non-confrontational way to learn about the pro-life movement through working or volunteering at a pregnancy center. It's very important. Watch the videos released by the Center for Medical Progress. Yes, they're gruesome. Took me three tries to watch the fifth one. I finally was able to finish it. My husband walked out of the room because he could hear the audio. He couldn't, he's our president of Texas Right to Life and he couldn't watch them. Watch the videos, share them on social media. Start the conversation. Start the conversation, dispel the myths and the stereotypes and the videos do that. Follow pro-life organizations like Texas Right to Life, like the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute on social media. Promote these organizations. Make sure that your friends and colleagues and people in your sphere of influence know there are pro-life alternatives to the liberal media. Know who your local, state, and national elected officials are. Every elected official, especially the guys, always want to hear from cute young girls. Know who they are. I'm serious. I don't mean that in a tacky way, but they do. They've told us before, don't send a hairy-legged guy into my office when you've got two cute girls you could send in. And they're not being fresh, they're just saying, I'd much rather talk to them than the guys. So know who your elected officials are. Set an appointment, Set a relationship, start a relationship with the staff if you have to. Tell them your concerns. Elected officials want to hear from you. Don't believe that they're so high up or they're untouchable probably a bad term to use with girls. Don't believe that your elected officials are unreachable. They want to hear from you. They work for you. You should be in touch with them, checking their progress and letting them know. What was happening today in US Congress? Can anybody tell me? Besides you three. Well, yes, that was too, but that's not what I'm talking about, so that's fair. No, so the U.S. House of Representatives was working on a budget maneuver called a reconciliation bill. The reconciliation bill includes a mechanism to defund Planned Parenthood. So we have been flooding our Texas delegation with calls to sponsor and to pass this bill. And our Texas delegation is very good. We don't have to worry about them very much. So that passed our U.S. House today. But because of our calls to their offices, we all of their staff members have been calling us back. So when you are paying attention, your elected officials know, and they're very nervous. If they're, if they're squishy on life, they're very nervous. If they're pro-life, they are so glad for your encouragement. So please make sure you know who your elected officials are. A friend of ours uh, who is this cute little young housewife called and said, I want to run for the water board. What do I do? And, we said, we don't really think you have pro-life issues on the water board. It's called a municipal utility district, and those are so hotly political. But she's like, I'm just a little housewife. I have two kids. I don't even know what it means. And so she ran for office and won. And here we know that 
little Emily Pataki in Cedar Creek, Texas, she has experience. She's learning the political process. She's learning how corrupt these municipal utility districts are. And she may run for office as a state rep one day. That is a very important race, not for pro-life stuff, but to know where she stands now. Because when she starts moving up, we'll know that she's on solid footing. And she won't be one of the ones in the caucus with Senator Burton telling everyone, oh, it's too controversial. We're pushing too hard. We don't want to do that. So get to know your elected officials. The pro-life movement has something for everyone. No talent or treasure go unused. Sometimes working towards a pro-life future feels like one step forward and 10 giant steps backwards. But when I look around the room, I'm reminded of this new wave of feminists, the real feminists. I was gonna say including you fellows, but there's only one here. The new wave of feminists are you. You are the ones who will secure our future and secure the future for our generations to come. I'm counting on you to not shy away from politics and to make your voice your voices heard for a better tomorrow. Thank you. We have time for some questions. Hi, I'm Caitlin Anderson, and I go to Baylor University. Um, and one of the main arguments- Are you involved in our pro-life club there? <laughs> yeah, I'm on the email list. <laughs> awesome. I'm a freshman, so I'm like, just got there. Um, one of the main arguments that I hear people say whenever I try to talk about the video, the Planned Parenthood videos, um, is that they argue that they're edit they're edited, and so they don't they're not like solid proof um, of what's going on. So how do you respond to that? Excellent question. I'm glad you asked that. So any video that you've ever seen in your whole life, unless you've taken it on your camera, is edited. Netflix, anywhere, even the videos on YouTube are edited because the people in them or the people producing them wanted to be perfected. However, the whole unedited version of all those videos is also available online. They're all on YouTube and they're all on the Center for Medical Progress's website. So the unedited versions, the hour and 20 minutes, if you can stomach that much footage of each one is available online. So, and when watching those, you'll find out that there's really nothing altered in the ones that they have promoted and sent out as the shorter versions. Hi, my name is Mackenzie White, and I go to Texas Tech University, and I also work for Congressman Mike Conaway, okay. who I'm proud has voted 100% pro-life in his time in Congress. Um, I was going to ask you, a lot of the... Are you a uh, Red Raider for life? Yes, I am. Oh. Right. It's two for two. Okay. Uh, a lot of the backlash I hear from being a pro-life woman is that all of these what-if uh, circumstances, like what if some extraordinary event happens and a woman is to become pregnant, are we supposed to chain her to this baby forever and that sort of thing, which I personally don't have sure. those feelings towards it at all, but how do you respond to that kind of backlash? Excellent question. So there's sort of two tracks for an answer on that. And I'll give you the political one first, which is when you there's legislation going around that are being introduced that has an, an exception for babies who are conceived of rape and incest or women who are victims of sexual assault. Our position in the legislature is that 
if the bill is actually solid and will move, may do significant progress as far as stopping abortion, we will consider including the exception. But the reason that we refuse, you, we usually do not, is because the rape and incest exceptions are a smokescreen for keeping abortion legal. Because less than 1% of all pregnancies a year result are a result of rape and incest. So that's a smokescreen. So they're saying, well, you can't ban abortion because of rape and incest. So they're saying you can't stop 1.2 million abortions in the U.S. because of this 1%. And so as far as legislation and politics, that's a smokescreen. Now, the other part of that is when there's a sexual assault, of course, we need to do everything we can to help a woman but we don't help a woman heal from a sexual assault by taking her to a place that's gonna murder her child. If you ask any woman who is suffering from the pain of abortion, who's carrying that with her, whether it's two weeks or 10 years, she will tell you that she thinks about that child every day and mourns the loss of that child every day. So what is more torturous? That a woman walks around with the emotional turmoil from being victimized by sexual assault or that she walks, I mean, not that you can judge which one's worse, but you don't compound that by giving her, by subjecting her to a, a, a decision that she'll regret the rest of her life. The other part of it is that the child had no, um, no child has any say in how the child was conceived. And there are so many people who would welcome that baby if the woman herself finds she can't care for the baby. There are so many people who would take that baby regardless of how the child was conceived. So on the rape and incest, I, did I answer your question? Okay. Another smokescreen that's being used as one of the hard cases is fetal abnormality. So if the baby's diagnosed with a fetal abnormality, we shouldn't you know, make the parents live and pay for those expenses. Well, first of all, prenatal diagnosis are wrong quite a bit. And secondly, we don't kill people who have disabilities, whether they're born or unborn. If you follow that logic, where we need to kill a baby who only has nine toes or one arm, if we follow that logic, we're back to Nazi Germany, where we can decide who is the useless eater and who should live. So that's a very dangerous, eth very dangerous ethic to decide that people, women and men, or doctors should tell you when to abort your children. And the pressure to abort a baby who has a fetal abnormality or a disability is unbearable for women who uh, fight the medical industry and who say, no way, we're carrying our baby. It's unbearable. So we don't buy into the exception of fetal abnormality. And you really shouldn't put in a policy that says you can abort disabled unborn babies. That's horrible. So, and um, I was gonna say one more thing on that, but I forgot. Yes? Oh, I'm sorry, I'll wait for you. Okay. Hi, my name's Arissa and I'm a sophomore at Yale University. At our school, I recently found out over the summer that we, are, we have to have health insurance, of course, and it was cheaper for my family to pay $1,200 a semester for my university insurance, which covers unlimited free abortions at the local yeah. Planned Parenthood up the block. Um, so I was wondering if you thought there's anything that we can do about that at a private university that funds it, you know, funds itself on its large endowment and whether anything there's anything students can do to fight this. I would say make a big stink. Start some trouble in your student government or at your student health center. This The university is there to serve you. So I would think gather other students who are like-minded. See if there's, I'm sure there's a pro-life club at Yale. If not, there might be a college Republican club and they would be a good uh, 
group to see if you can find some pro-life advocates. Look for a faculty sponsor who you think shares your views and your values. Look for an administrator who's high up. Look for an alumni who might be conservative, who gives the school a lot of money and reach out to that alumni person. There are lots of ways to try and bear influence. Now, it won't be easy. It probably won't happen in one semester, but you could start some uh, noise and some activists that might cause Yale to give you a various plans of insurance, op students for options for the students to choose from. Hi, my name is Jocelyn. I go to Biola University in Southern California. Um, and I know we've been focusing uh, more on uh, abortion and the right to life there, but I know your organization also focuses on um, just protecting life until natural death. So how would Texas right to life answer to the argument that assisted suicide or euthanasia um, allows people to die with dignity um, and that this uh, is a compassionate and responsible thing to do? since it would give ailing persons the option to end their lives before things get worse? Well, we, Texas Right to Life does not think that injecting a medicine into somebody's veins allows them to die with dignity. And we don't really believe in this death with dignity slogan. We believe that you live with dignity. And if you live with dignity, and you live according to your own moral code, and you value your own life and the lives of others, that's how you die with dignity, because you've lived a dignified life. And we do not agree with physician-assisted suicide, because in the states and areas where that has been legalized, it becomes physician-imposed death. It's not suicide. It's physician-imposed death. There are terrible statistics from Oregon and Washington that show how people have felt pressured to end their lives because the doctors have convinced them that they're a burden to their families and to the community, which is completely unjust. Hi, my name is Victoria and I attend Gordon College in Massachusetts. Um, following in this vein of smoke screens and common arguments for the pro-choice movement, how do you handle the conversation about if a pregnancy becomes dangerous for the mother? Excellent, that's a great one. So in this day and age, there is very little chance that a pregnancy becomes dangerous for the mother because the medical science is so advanced that doctors can usually treat both the mother and the child. There might be a rare case where the pregnancy itself threatens the life of the mother, and that's an important distinction because you might have scoliosis or multiple sclerosis or something else but the pregnancy is not the cause of that. So we're always very careful to distinguish that a life-threatening medical condition, a life-threatening condition caused by the pregnancy itself is very different than a woman who has other health problems because generally an abortion is not an appropriate therapy to correct a woman's other medical issues. Does that make sense or is that more confusing? Hi, my name is Genevieve O'Quinn, and I go to the University of Alabama, and I'm the president of Bama Students for Life. Um, so Texas Right to Life is a grassroots movement just like we are, and so I was wondering, um, a problem that we often have in our group is that we are all students, and so it's easier for us to sort of control the 
activist actions of our members, but there are also community members that have the best intentions, um, but that doesn't always play out as well in practice, um, which is difficult for us to navigate since typically those people are a lot older than us and have been working in the pro-life movement for much longer than we have. So what is your advice? Do they shout at pregnant women going into abortion clinics? Sometimes. Yes. I thought maybe that's what you're trying to say without saying it. Okay. So is, did you want to finish or is that it? Um, that was pretty much it. Okay. So um, let me think about a good answer to that. I would think asking them, having a meeting that's not centered around a pro-life activity, just ask them to lunch or coffee and say, we'd really like to pick your brain about what you think is effective activism so that they feel invested in your club and they kind of take you on maybe that way. And then once you have their respect where they're kind of looking to you, and it might take one or two tries, one or two meetings, then maybe say, could we, would you guys be willing to join with us in a peaceful prayerful vigil where maybe you're praying for us while we on the sidelines while we try to talk to the girls going in so could we maybe talk about how that would work if we change the style of our meeting on the outside on the sidewalk so maybe if you could make them feel like they're supporting you in a new project or a new tone at the clinic that might be helpful um, and you might ask them to maybe bring uh, literature that shows development you could give them a project this sounds so awful but maybe give them a project that says would you bring us literature of uh, development in the womb instead of the pictures they might bring that show pictures of aborted babies those are helpful in certain contexts but I do, I have not found them to be helpful to girls who are abor abortion vulnerable going into clinics they need love they need strength they need to be uh, persuaded to come talk to you and an angry messenger is not helpful in that situation I mean she's at life or death walking into that clinic you've got to get her to come over and talk to you and so if you kind of ask them to bring pictures of fully formed babies and what that looks like on fetal development maybe you could give them a project and sort of uh, cajole them into supporting you so that they're more in cooperation with kind of your the new generation but Rachel Bush uh, stand up so everybody sees you. Okay, Rachel Bush is one of our, uh, she oversees our education department and Texas Right to Life has a fellowship where we are active on campuses and we actually give money to college students to lead Texas Right to Life's efforts. And so she, Rachel Bush, might have better ideas for you than I did on that. And then Emily Kibito, I want you to meet her. Emily Kibito, Rachel was one of our fellows at University of Texas. Emily Kibito was also one of our fellows at Stephen F. Austin and then at Baylor Law School. Emily is now our general counselor and political director. And then also Sarah Crawford is here. Sarah wears a number of hats in our organization, but right now she's back in the political hat since we have an upcoming March primary. But these girls too, they're here and they probably have a lot better ideas too on activism and other ways to advance your pro-life use. So I don't want you to miss an opportunity to talk to them. Thank you. Sure. And with that, we are going to close questions. Okay. Um, we're gonna take just a couple minute break to let you guys stretch your legs, get something to drink, um, but don't head out too far. We have one last speaker today. So thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us. We really appreciate it.